Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Chapter 30 of A Drop in Infinity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Drop in Infinity by Gerald Grogan, Chapter 30 To return, when Marjorie had finished describing me as her dear, dear, she drifted by a natural progression to an outpouring of abuse that might well have dislocated the gall of a livery drill sergeant. I forget her exact grievance, but imagine it was because I had frightened her, and it was too much trouble for her to weigh my actual guilt in the matter. When she had talked herself dry, I was allowed to inform them all as to what had happened. Adela, strangely enough, burst into tears at the news, but I think we all felt relieved that Quelch had fallen by act of God, and not by my hand. In any case, we could not help feeling that a heavy cloud had lifted from our sky. Therefore we went forth very cheerfully the following morning to conduct an important test. I have mentioned our ox-cart, I believe. Well, this cart had strange wheels not unlike barrel-ends, which worked on a wooden axle, and fell to pieces at the slightest encouragement. I had grown ambitious, however, with the arrival of Peter, and a part of the winter had been devoted to spoke-shaving out proper wheels, hubs, spokes, and fellows, whilst Peter forged an iron axle-tree and cunningly devised bolts—not screw-bolts, of course—to fasten it to the cart. I had left him with his part of the job half finished, but now everything was ready for the trial trip. We fixed them now, said Peter, and fetch load from mine, for I have use what is by forge. We feel cart full now. There's a ackle never brack in hundred year. So we yoked up the oxen, and they immediately stampeded. Wait, howled Peter, hopping like a delirious monkey, whilst Adela and I fought at the nose-ropes. Wait, you great white cows, while I grease them. Yen by Yemeni, you thank your right bicycle. He flapped on a handful of tallow on either side. The oxen snorted, and we were off, the cart bounding like a war-chariot, and Adela and myself still fluttering at the excited beasts' heads. Marjorie, of course, had managed to get on board, and was at the moment performing fantastic feats with a stock-whip. How she maintained her balance I cannot say. Peter, of course, had managed to get left behind, and followed, like foot-feathered mercury, in the dust of our tempestuous passage. Sometimes he roared with laughter, and sometimes he cursed the loss of one of his sandals. 
but ever before he flitted the crashing cart and the whip licking back and forth like the arm of a stranded octopus. We came to an abrupt halt by running full tilt into the western abatis. I fielded Marjorie neatly as she slid forth over the rump of the near ox. But I think he only missed kicking us both to pieces for that he was preoccupied in the attempt to gore his yoke-mate. Adela and Peter unjustly claimed that the narrowly averted disaster was our fault, and they would not allow us to have anything more to do with the oxen, so we accepted the situation and flirted along behind the outfit as far as the mine. As the others were so keen on the job, we let them do the filling up as well. Peter was young and lusty, and a little spade work would not come amiss to him. It seemed a glorious thing that our cart would no longer loosen every tooth within earshot by the dint of the music of its passage. Marjorie and I went over to the river to see if there were fish. Hi! shouted Adela presently. How about that salt? Bother! said Marjorie. I forgot that. Peter and I were boiling salt the other day, and I expect it's dry by now. Suppose we'll have to go and get it. She looked mournfully down the path to the sea. It was a very warm day, and I saw she was thinking hard. It must be done, said Marjorie finally, and on that word began to limp. She travelled about a fathom towards the ox cart and sat down. I'm afraid I've sprained my ankle, she said firmly. Put me on the cart and I will go home to my babies. I put her on the cart and I kissed the sprain. It is the only treatment necessary for this class of injury, when Marjorie develops it on a hot day under the influence of more work on the horizon. Adela looked at her sourly, but Marjorie's face was too appealing for the older woman's ill temper to last. I'll manage them well enough with this big load to keep them quiet, said Adela. Do you and Amundsen go on for the salt? Oh, you... She shook my erring wife furiously, and that potentate grinned. While they went round the bend of the cliff, Marjorie was still sitting on a leathern apron, which covered the load of hematite, and Adela was walking by her cattle's heads. As we went on down to the sea, Peter informed me of a smudge of smoke seen on the horizon during their last trip to the salt cave. I suggested a forest fire on the opposite shore, but he said it had appeared further out toward the island, and had only lasted for a minute or two. Perhaps it was a steamer, I suggested laughing, but my private opinion inclines toward a spouting whale. There goes one of them now. It was a gorgeous spring day with a bright sun and a gentle southerly breeze rippling the blue water. The wallowing monster in the foreground added just the touch of wildness to the sea, which, coupled with the long rake of desolate coast and the distant hills and black forest to the north, made everything doubly attractive to my mind. However, we had two busy hours before us, and Marjorie's sudden lameness will perhaps become more understandable when I explain that we dried out our salt in those days in metal pots. Some of these were gold and needed no attention, but the gold pocket had rather given out, and we had to add two vessels of iron to the appliances. These, of course, called for very careful treatment. We had to dry them, scrub them well with sand, and lard them well with fish oil until next time and even then they rusted. We emerged finally from the cave with a fixed determination to bathe. It was high tide, so we stripped our dirty working buttskins and left them, with our machetes, among the rocks. 
We found a good pulpit, and from here we were able to dive into deep water. Peter swore he saw a lobster among the seaweed, and we spent some time on a foolish attempt to capture it with a crooked stick. We continued to amuse ourselves in this manner until I realized that I was going to catch it hot on my return, Marjorie setting her face sternly against idleness in me. Peter, I said firmly, it's time to go back. What? And be made work in garden? I stay here all day. You may, I said, but I don't. Marjorie, Peter, look. The defiant Peter immediately looked in the wrong direction, inland. In spite of his brave words, I think he expected either Marjorie or Adela, because his conscience was not bright. "'File we have no clues, they cannot come near,' he muttered. "'It was you say we go bathe.' "'It's not that, you Paul Truman,' I cried. "'Look out to sea.' "'I see nothing. About four points off the island, then.' "'Squall! No! Jumping Jehoshaphat! Sail!' We scrambled up on the largest rock available, and I wonder what wild ideas chase one another through Peter's head. My own was sufficiently strange in all conscience, and I was more than a little frightened. I had a dreadful feeling that I was going to wake up on the cliffs at Pontiac, to find the last eight years had been a vivid dream no more. Just a summer dream, and only Aunt Wilhelmina's dwindling legacy between me and the end. I shut my eyes several times and opened them with a jerk. I pinched myself. I looked at my callous hands and feet. I did everything possible to hurry the dread awakening, if it had to come, and finally I discovered myself drawing comfort from the thought that perhaps Marjorie's engagement to Crawley was illusion also. Then I smote myself very hard on my foolish head. "'Why you do that?' said Peter. "'Oh, you're still there, are you?' I abruptly realised what I was saying and felt awkward. "'I know!' cried Peter triumphantly. You think you wake up? I feel same way too. Do not wake, Jon Torp. Do not wake. First we see what is by this boat. So fixed was I in my dream theory that I was rapidly imagining myself into the correct sensations for the occasion. Do not wake, Jon Torp. Do not wake, echoed the words in the deep caverns of my mind. I shook my head furiously. I must, I said. It is a serious matter. It... Peter is a man of quick sympathies. He read the anguish in my face. It is no dream, he said gently. The boat, come, Jon, look at boat, and be not fool. Thank you, Peter. I blushed and looked at the boat very wide awake. It was getting nearer, and the unfamiliar familiarity of it, the incongruity of it on that whale-harbouring sea, more distinct. A gust came, and it healed a little. A cutter, I remarked. Yol, corrected Peter. I see that yigger sail aft. There was a longish pause, and then... I see man, said Peter. He took off his wide-brimmed straw hat, the only garment he had on, and he waved it. From the deck of the little white vessel a cloth fluttered, and by straining my eyes to the uttermost... I imagined I could make out the heads of several people. She was coming up rapidly along the coast with the wind on her starboard quarter, and the slant of her deck made it hard to see who was aboard. One man was certainly standing by the rigging, and he it was who weighed the handkerchief. The rest, if there were others, would be below or in the cockpit aft of the saloon. 
I made a correct guess at the vessel's displacement. She would be about fifteen tons. She altered her course slightly, the main sheet came in, and she stood more directly toward us, with the wind abeam. As if the manoeuvre had terrified him, Peter gave a yell of horror and dropped. "'What is it?' I cried in alarm. "'Do you think?' "'I see,' cried Peter, now coursing swiftly across the rocks. "'I think I see womans. I blush. How we know they not got spyglass?' I joined him. We were both fine-looking fellows, but the thought was disturbing nevertheless. The lacing of our leather shirts slipped in our trembling fingers, so that by the time we returned in more seemly guise, the boat was close enough to distinguish individuals. Three, cried Peter. No, four. Man by rigging fair grey tweed soot. Wait. A splotch of red broke out at the peak. The wind fluttered it, so that it was hard to distinguish the blazon of her nation. Norsk, said Peter hopefully, and then the ensign stood flat as a board for one fleeting second. Pfft, grunted Peter. Engelsk. I'm sorry, Peter. Never mind. Maybe I get used talk your goddamn language by and by, he laughed. He howl, he added. We answered the hail. Ship ahoy, I shouted, and the cry went forth for the first time across the waters. What ship's that? Hanged if I know, echoed a faint and perplexed voice from out the sun-flecked offing. Light broke upon my troubled mind, and I sat down to laugh. Peter, I said, it's some more of the Hubble-Bubble's work. Poor beggars. We waited while she drew closer, and presently up she ran into the wind within bowshot of us. Where can we find a sheltered anchorage? roared the man in the grey tweeds. He had a great big voice, but he was a big, broad-shouldered fellow. I liked the ring of the voice. There were also in the cockpit a man at the tiller, two girls and a grown woman, all staring at us. A youth of about seventeen or eighteen was busy with the jib-sheets. I could see no other people. I advised them to keep on up the coast to the mouth of the river, hugging the shore on the hitherward side on account of the shoals to the northeast. We were so wrought up that we never waited to see her get under way again, but sped off toward the trysting cove at a pace which might well have pumped Elijah, the Tishbite. Nevertheless, she got there first, and was riding at anchor when we broke forth on the beach. It was stranger than I can describe to see her there, a twentieth-century sail-yacht with wire-rigging and bobstay and polished brass cleats, twinkling in the sunlight, lifting to the ripple of our unexplored and unexploited sea. A dinghy splashed overboard, and the boy I had previously noticed in the bow slipped into her and took the oars. The grey tweed man lowered his heavy body into the stern with surprising dexterity, seized the yoke lines, and rasped out an order, immediately protruded a flaming head from the cabin, and an imaginary cap was touched to an all but non-existent quarter-deck as an even larger man flowed forth. This person was quaintly clad in a blue serge shirt and hairy deerskin breeches of uneven length. He handed a letter to the commander, stroked his long gingery moustache, and gazed dreamily at us across the water. "'Tumble in!' snapped the grey tweed man. "'Decker will stand by with the gun in case of accidents.' "'I'll just tuck my axe,' announced Deerskins, and dropped leisurely towards down the companion again. The commander of the expedition appeared vexed. "'I'm no confident,' 
"'But there'll be a display of hostility,' continued Robinson Crusoe, as he returned with a strange weapon of gleaming bronze, which he twirled lightly in one hand, although the blade looked to weigh a good fourteen pounds. "'Wayfore has yon wee felly brocked his bow and arrows?' "'Eh! And look at the muckle dirk, will ye? "'Yon surely a ferocious weapon.' Grey Tweeds gave an inarticulate howl. Simultaneously, the three ladies of the party clapped their hands over their ears as, complacently breasting a torrent of oaths, Deerskin slowly inserted one semi-nude limb into the bows of the dinghy. Halfway down, he paused to shake his exodus. "'Ho, ho!' he barked. "'Ha, ha!' cried Peter, and waved his muckle-duck in defiance. This caused quite a sensation, and grey tweeds leaned outboard sideways, scrutinizing us through half-shut eyes. "'Here you!' he shouted. "'You're an Englishman, aren't you?' "'I used to be,' I assured him. "'Is this an invasion or a friendly visit? "'For we'd like to be prepared.' "'Ha!' cried Tweeds in a relieved voice. "'Drop that axe, McTavish, and sit down. "'Give way, Galloway.' The dinghy drove, chuckling across the waters of the cove, to ground, with a grating of shingle just below us. Instantly, McTavish's enormous feet spurned the gravel as he sprang to shore, his headman's chopper flung back over the right shoulder, ready to remove seven heads with the blow. "'Quick!' shouted Peter. "'He steal his fancy breeches before he escape. "'Voro!' He waggled his machete suggestively and advanced, crouching in imitation of the valiant McTavish. The puzzled oarsman caught my eye and grinned. "'It's all right,' he said plaintively. Fact of the matter is, you know, every bally living thing we've met so far has put up a fight. So how were we to know what you would do? We'd be glad to know where we are, by the way. The commander came ashore as McTavish lowered his weapon. Can you tell us whether a man called Thorpe lives here? He inquired stiffly. He does, I said. Is that my mail you have? Ha, repeated Tweeds. So you're John Thorpe, are you? He seemed to be considering the advisability of damning my eyes. "'You expected us, apparently,' he grunted. "'I did not, sir. I neither expected you nor have I the foggiest idea as to who you may be. But I'll venture a guess you came at the instigation of a long-necked lunatic with a fiddle.' Tweed's jaw dropped. "'Ha!' he cried. "'By Jove! Galloway! By Jove! What?' "'By Jove!' said Galloway, in a respectful tone. McTavish and Peter were walking round one another, as friendly as a newly introduced brace of Aberdeens. I could almost see the hair rising on their backs. Tweeds cocked his head on one side, and again narrowed his eyes. "'My name's Seppings,' he informed me finally. "'I, uh, hum. Captain Seppings, hum, least. Used to be what, Galloway?' "'Sir,' said Galloway, who, in spite of burst shoes and strangely patched and darned clothing, yet bore traces of gunroom origin. "'Captain, uh, um, Seppings, and a freckle-faced midshipman.' "'I began to wonder if the Hubble-Bubble had scuttled a battleship. "'Sir?' "'Carry on,' ordered the captain. "'You see, it's this way,' began Galloway eagerly. "'We're all at sea. That is to say, we don't exactly know where we are.' We, I say, haven't I seen you before? Haven't I seen you before, Mr. Galloway? Your face seems strangely familiar. Galloway coughed nervously. 
I uh, probably you have, you know. I, you see, I'm Mull and Galloway. He explained desperately. At least I was Mull and Galloway, before the uh, accident. But you see, the rank. Even Peter paused in his reconnaissance of the Bob McTavish, and all eyes were fixed on the blushing youth. I caught myself whistling, and Peter, who only came to us the year before, be it remembered, suddenly clicked his heels and saluted. Galloway returned the salute mechanically. "'I wish you wouldn't,' he implored. "'I was always given to understand that, that these things didn't apply in heaven, "'and the, the other hypothesis, rather frightful for the ladies, what?' "'Never fear, Mr. Galway,' I laughed. "'Neither the one nor the other, "'though I fear it's good-bye to England and the old world. "'Where you actually are, I shall have to await "'a more favourable moment to explain to you. "'You say my face is familiar. "'I suggest you cast your mind back "'to the illustrated papers of eight years ago. "'John Thorpe's my name, "'and I met your lunatic friend by chance.' "'My hat,' said Galway suddenly. Miss Marjorie Matthews was alive and well a few hours ago, I continued. I expect and hope she is alive yet, and will continue so for many a year. But the other person... Captain Crawley? Yes, the fiddle man shot him. It wasn't my fault or anybody else's fault so far as I can see. Perhaps this letter will help to clear matters. I opened the last message from the Hubble Bubble and read it aloud to those people. He said, Dear Thorpe, Fortune has favoured me since last we met. I find myself in possession of enough emigrants to satisfy even my greed for raw material. I have been very bad of late, shocking bad, pains in my head and depression. But now I'm better. Now I'm better. The writing, belying the Hubble Bubble's words, began to get very wavery hereabouts, and shall be all right soon. Better. I'm only a poor Hubble Bubble, but the end is near. End near. Peace. The boat is my boat. I have painted out the name for private reasons. I have the boat on account of the pressmen of whom many millions are hunting for me in New York. There is a man in New York with a face like Crawley, but without the blood on it. I shall send these people in the boat, same as I sent myself in the tub, you remember, and then I can go back by myself and leave them. Got experiments down to a very fine point now, so the end must be near. Now, for God's sake, listen to me. This is so hard to write because of my head. This is... Listen, I want to make sure that these people reach you all right, so I'll go back to the whistling adit, and you must tell them all to be there so that I can see them. The day will be the anniversary of the day you and Miss Marjorie came through, and the time the same. I will be punctual, but the end is near. The end... It is very hard to write this letter... If I do not come, I will be dead. Last ditch now, and all inside my brain. Other people don't see there is a battle at all. Other people don't see you. Yet one is as close to them as the other. It will go on. Now I feel better. When I began this, I was rotten, which may account for my incoherence, but no time to alter. If I don't turn up, something has happened. I am an absent-minded chap, and have a feeling I'm going to make some incredibly obvious blunder one of these bright days. Do your best to explain matters to crowd. Fear you will be gallant captain, R.N. Rather tough nut, curious intellectual type, kind remembrance and so forth. Yours in haste. Not so thingamy jinx as you thought, but plain Jasper Smith. 
Well, that doesn't explain much, I said. Perhaps it would be better for you to give me your own experiences first, and we can go into the other matters later. How would it be if you brought the rest of your ship's company ashore and let them voice their views? I expect they're cursing at the delay as it is. Captain Seppings agreed to this, and Galway pushed off his dinghy again. We besought them to sit down in a circle on the beach, and this gave me a chance to observe them closely. Besides the three I have already described, there were four others in the party. Mrs. Seppings, a slender, athletic-looking woman of perhaps forty, with greying hair and a humorous mouth and eyes, was the eldest. Next to her came Decker, a man of thirty-odd with a pointed beard and spiky moustache. He is an American, and wore a solid clue to his nationality in the shape of a round hat of soft felt. With the exception of McTavish, he was the most dilapidated member of the band, his clothes being freely patched with the same hairy material whereof the Scot had wrought him breeches. The remaining two were only girls, the daughters of Captain and Mrs. Seppings. They were respectively fifteen and seventeen years old at the time, and to describe them fully and as few words as may suffice, they were both fair, both distinctly pretty, and had been respectively nicknamed the Patched and the Ragged Flappers. Rags was the younger girl. She made more noise in the world than Patches, but I think Patches thought more. Their characters were written on their garments, and I suspected with justice that a large part of the few repairs Rags exhibited were done by adoring Galway with a sailmaker's needle. Altogether, they were a queer-looking lot. They were frayed and worn and tanned by the sun, but they were clean and, with the exception of the individual noted, tidy as might be. The captain was a strict disciplinarian. I hid my amusement at their shabby gentility and let Galway take up the tale. End of chapter 30 Read by Harlan in London 2023